Good evening. Thank you to the Rappaport family for sponsoring this lecture. It's an honor to be here tonight. Not long ago, right here in New York, we discovered that a politician who had fought to stop corruption in politics was involved in some disturbingly corrupt activities of his own. More than anyone was upset about the particular activities, people were angry about having been deceived. In our society, we consider lying, pretending to be something that you're not, to be one of the lowest, most unforgivable crimes you can commit. When we come to celebrate Pesach, many of us will give different answers as to what exactly we are celebrating. It could be redemption and freedom, or maybe God's hand in the world, or maybe the birth of the nation that is now the Jewish people. Few of us would say, however, that we are celebrating B'nai Yisrael and God's deception of the Egyptian people. Yet, if we go back and look at the Exodus story, we will find that deception is a big part of the entire story. It's not just a side issue. It's a central theme that pervades the story from beginning to end. I have put most of the instances in which the deception appears in Exodus on your handouts, and I will refer to them periodically. For now, let's just start by looking at the first source on your handouts, number one. Um, just to, I'm just going to summarize the first two verses in which God basically tells Moshe that he needs to gather the people and tell them that God is going to take the people out of Egypt and bring them to Israel, to, to the land of Israel, to a land that's flowing with milk and honey. And then picking up in verse 18, Pasuk Yod Chet, God says the following, they will listen to you, and you shall go with the elders of Israel to the king of Egypt. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, manifested himself to us. Now therefore, let us go a distance of three days into the wilderness to sacrifice to the Lord our God. Verse 19, Yet I know that the king of Egypt will let you go only because of a greater might. So I will stretch my hand out and smite Egypt with various wonders which I will work on them. After that, he shall let you go. And I will dispose the Egyptians favorably towards this people, so that when you go, you shall not go away empty-handed. Each woman shall borrow from her neighbor and the lodger in her house objects of silver and gold and clothing, and you shall put these on your sons and daughters, thus stripping the Egyptians. Hand in hand with the promise to free the Jews from Egypt comes the original command to deceive. And that's exactly what happens. Moshe and Aharon go to Paro, request a three-day journey to worship God, and at the end, when they leave, B'nai Israel borrow gold and silver vessels from their neighbors. They never return from this three-day journey, so they have engaged in two acts of deception, leaving forever when they said they were only taking a short trip, and keeping the items that they said they were borrowing. These actions seem, at worst, immoral, and at best, kind of embarrassing. How can we explain these actions? Ibn Ezra says the following, There are some who decry and say that our forefathers were, sleep, were, were thieves. But they do not see that it was in fulfillment of a divine command. There is no point in asking why. For God creates everything, and he gives riches to whomever he chooses, and may take from one and give to another. There is nothing bad about this, for everything belongs to him. Thanks a lot, Ibn Ezra. Now we don't need to worry about the actions of our forefathers. Instead, God is in the hot seat. We have an ethical problem. How can the God who demands of us a high level of morality in all of our dealings tell us to deliberately lie and deceive? Moreover, we have a philosophical problem. Why would an all-powerful God, who, in the words of Ibn Ezra, gives riches to whomever he chooses, 
require his nation to stoop to the level of trickery in order to obtain their freedom and their monetary reward. Some other commentators give more satisfying answers to the problem of B'nai Israel's deception of the Egyptians. This evening I'd like to go through some of the major trends in interpreting this puzzling problem in the Torah. We will first see a trend to downplay or to completely deny these deceptions. After that, we will see an approach that owns up to the deception, but justifies it as being what the Egyptians deserved. After closely examining those two approaches, we will see if perhaps we can reframe the whole question in a different way that will yield some more satisfying answers. Let's start with the first trend, the reinterpretation, or shall we say, denial of the acts of deception. Our wise commentators find ways to say that no deception in fact occurred. In order to understand this approach, we need to look at each instance of deception on its own. Let's start with the three-day journey. Isaac Abarbanel, the 15th century Portuguese commentator, offered the following explanation of the three-day journey. The explanation that seems more correct to me is that God did this to show people the hardness of Paro's heart and his stubbornness and to show that the punishments exacted against Paro and Egypt were just. Since all they asked of him was a three-day journey to sacrifice to God. The purpose of the three-day journey request, according to a Barbanel, was to make the case for the struggle against Paro. By making such a little request to have a three-day break to worship God and getting rebuffed so harshly by Paro, Moshe has exposed Paro to B'nai Israel and to the world as a tyrant and an enslaver. Everyone would now understand that the battle Moshe wages against Paro is a just one. Professor Nachum Sarna, a contemporary Bible scholar, has some research from the ancient Near East that may back up this view. Professor Sarna, in his book, Exploring Exodus, points out that historians have some records kept by Egypt Egyptian supervisors of laborers in which they record when the laborers did not show up for work and why. The most common reasons for missing work in these records are illness or laziness. But the reason sacrificing to God also appears in the records. In fact, one log reports that a group of laborers were given a four-day-long break from work for a religious holiday. So, as Abarbanel says, the request for a three-day break to worship God would not be totally out of the ordinary. It would be a fairly reasonable request. And we can agree that not granting this totally reasonable request would make Paro look really awful. Others who follow Abarbanel's commentary take it a step further, claiming that after this initial test of Paro's strong will, Moshe did directly request complete and permanent freedom. After he quotes the Abarbanel, Rav Yaakov Tzvi Mecklenburg, the 19th century German author of the Torah commentary HaKitab VeHaKabbalah, says the following, Vihine, achare asher mi'en gam habakasha haketana hazot, and after Paro refused even that small request, Moshe then asked him a number of times to send them out completely and grant them eternal freedom, as I will explain later. According to his interpretation then, there was no deception whatsoever with the request for the three-day trip. It was simply a first offer, a negotiation tactic, if you will. After that small request was rebuffed, Moshe then had the moral backing to demand complete freedom, which he did. This explanation is great in terms of ethics, but it has some textual problems. First of all, there may not be a place where Moshe actually does explicitly ask for complete freedom. The Ketav HaKabbalah finds it in um, Parag Dalid, Pasuk Kaf Gimel, and let's, let's take a look at that a little bit. It's number two on your source sheet. Um, I'll start even from Pasuk Kaf Aleph to give you the context um, and see, see how he reads it. Vayomer Adonai Moshe, Belech Techel Ashuv Mitzrayma, Re'ei Kol HaMoftim Asher Samti V'yadecha, 
Vasitam bifne paro, vani achazek libo velo yishalach et ta'am. So first, Hashem tells Moshe that when you return to Egypt, you perform before Paro all the marvels that I put within your power, and then I'll stiffen his heart so that you will not, he will not let the people go. So it sounds like there's kind of a first request that God is asking Moshe to make, and that first request will be rebuffed. And then, after the first request is rebuffed, Va'amarta el Paro, Yisrael, va'omar elacha shalachet avdeni. Then you'll come and you'll say to Paro a second time. You'll make a second request after the first one was rebuffed. And in that one you say, Israel is my firstborn son, and you must let my son go that he may worship me, and if you refuse, I will kill your firstborn son. So according to the Ketav HaKabbalah, then, we have a first request that is the three-day journey, and then a second request of Shalachet Beniva Ya'avdeni. Let my son go that he may worship me. And this request is repeated a number of times in a slightly different, more well-known form in the phrase, Shalachet ami v'ya'avduni, let my people go that they may worship me, which Moshe repeats um, throughout the Exodus story. So, first of all, the Ketav HaKabbalah tries to prove that the grammatical form of the word Shalach, Shalachet bini, Shalachet ami, indicates sending eternally. And this, this may not actually be borne out in the grammar, but even, even without the grammatical point, many of us probably have read that phrase that way before. When we think of the classic phrase, let my people go, we usually don't assume that it means, let my people go on a three-day religious retreat. Um, but there is a more serious textual problem with the Ketav of HaKabbalah's explanation, and I think that, in fact, this more serious problem also reflects on what Shalach et Amivi Abduni actually means. And this more serious problem is from Paro's negotiations with Moshe. If you take a close look at what Paro and Moshe say to each other well after Shalach et Ami has been said a few times over, it is very clear that they're operating under the assumption that this is a temporary trip the entire time. Just to look at the main examples, I put them all into one big source that I called source number three on the next page. Um, so I'll just go through some of these quickly. The first one is after the fourth plague. So by now, Moshe's intent should be fairly clear. And it says, Okay, fine. You want to make a sacrifice? You can do it, but, but do it within the land of Egypt. Don't go on a three-day trip. So Moshe has a clever answer. You know, we can't, we can't actually stay here because the Egyptians will get very angry when they see us sacrificing animals. Um, so again, he repeats the fact that all they want is a three-day journey. Um, and then Paro even says, Paro says, fine, you can go, just don't go too far, please. Like, stay, stay close by so that I can be sure that you're coming back. Um, in the end, in this one, Paro changes his mind and doesn't let him go. But you see that the assumption is still very much that there is going to be a three-day journey with a return at the end. Um, the next one, in chapter 10, is before the eighth plague, um, where already here Paro's servants are getting upset that like the, the land is being destroyed, and so Paro collects them in just in verse 8, the second verse in the section, Vayushavet Moshevet Aharon el Paro. Vayomer alehem, l'chu yivduet Adonai Elohechem, mi vami hahochi. So he says, fine, you can go, but who exactly is going? Vayomer Moshe, binarenu uvizkenenu nelech, bivanenu uvivnotenu, so Moshe says this beautifully egalitarian verse about how we're, everyone is going young and old, male and female, children and adults. And Paro realizes that there's something fishy going on, it seems. Because he says, I'm really going to send you with your children? Like, I like the JPS translation here. It says, clearly you're bent on mischief. There's something wrong here that you're saying we want to go and you want to go and you're bringing a moving truck when you go to sacrifice to your God. Like, what, what's going on here? Um, 
And so he says, Lochei lechuna hagvarim so he says, really, if really what you wanted was to go worship, you would just go with the men. So he seems like suspicious of the deceit, but Moshe seems to still have enough clever answers. Oh, you know, everybody has to be involved, that he's still trying to hold up this idea that the three days is really what's going on. Um, again, later in chapter 10, after, during the ninth plague, Paro calls them in again to try to have the same conversation. Vaikra Paro Moshe. Fine, you can bring your children this time, just leave, leave your animals behind. You know, so, something has to stay. Um, and well, at this point, Moshe has more leverage, and he says, Again, Moshe has a clever answer. We have to bring every single piece of property that we own, every single animal in the entire Egypt has to come with us because we don't know what God wants until we get there. Right? So he can't say this is what, exactly what we want. He's saying we really we need to be prepared for anything. So therefore we have to bring all the cattle of Egypt with us. So again, Moshe keeps having these clever answers that show that he's really trying to keep up this idea that it is only a three-day journey. And this is, this is already the ninth plague. So this is already far into the Exodus story. Um, they're, they're really going to leave very soon. And he's still keeping up this idea of the three days. So I think it's hard to... It's hard to say, really, that even, even if we do assume that shalach et ami, let my people go, implies complete freedom, it probably actually doesn't. Because if you look at the greater context of the psukim, even after Moshe said, let my people go, many times, his negotiations with Paro are still focused on the purported three-day journey. I find an interesting spin-off on the claim that no deception occurred um, in a contemporary commentary. Rav Elchanan Samet of Yeshivat Haretzion claims that the three-day journey, the whole three-day journey idea, was not an outright deception, simply because it would have been completely obvious to Paro that B'nai Yisrael were requesting total freedom. If it wasn't obvious the first time they asked, then as the story progresses, it would become quite clear. Rosama claims that the idea that B'nai Yisrael were only going on a three-day journey was a pretense kept up by both sides during the negotiation. In reality, Paro knew as well as Moshe that if he let B'nai Yisrael go to worship, they would never return. Still, Samet claims that Paro and Moshe both preferred to conduct negotiations as if they were only talking about a three-day journey, since it would be easier for Paro to ultimately grant his permission to that request, to ultimately let them go for three days, then it would be to explain to his entire country why he is completely and eternally freeing a whole nation of slaves. I think this interpretation is attractive because otherwise Paro comes off as something of a buffoon for not realizing that B'nai Israel are not coming back. And also for making such a fuss, allowing his country to be destroyed by plagues over a three-day vacation if he really doesn't realize that there's something greater at stake. On the other hand, perhaps the Torah intends to make Paro look a little ridiculous in this story. And indeed, at the end of the story, Paro does seem awfully surprised that B'nai Israel have not returned. If you look at source number five on your source sheet, we'll get back to four. So source number five is right after B'nai Israel have left, they're heading towards the sea, and then it says, When the king of Egypt found out that the people had fled, Paro and his courtiers had a change of heart about the people and said, what is this we have done, releasing Israel from our service? Paro finds out that the nation fled. He didn't realize until now, it seems, that they were really leaving for good. He has to find out that they actually are on their way to freedom at this point. Um, so any argument that Paro really knew what was going on kind of breaks down at that point. At the very end, it seems very clear that he really didn't exactly know. So then, 
It's hard to say that no deception occurred with the request for a three-day journey. In the end, if nothing else, Pyro's surprise on the third day is a pretty good indicator that foolish as he may have been, he was deceived. It is likely that any interpretation that denies all deception is actually engaging in apologetics, defending Jews from attacks of immorality more than really trying to find the simple meaning of the text. We now move on to the second instance of deception, the borrowing of the gold and silver. A few commentators give a linguistic explanation of the word used for borrowing that eliminates all deception from the story. I quote from the commentary of Rabbi Samuel ben Meir, the Rashbam. Sha'al here means to request an outright and absolute gift. That is why it says, I shall dispose the Egyptians favorably to the people. That God says that when they ask for these things, he will, make these he will kind of make a miracle that everyone will agree to do this. And you don't need a miracle to make people agree to lend you something. You do if you're asking for an outright gift. Um, and then he also has a proof from elsewhere in the Bible. Kemo sha'almimeni. Excuse me. Kemo sha'almimeni ve'etnagoyim nachalatecha. And the, there is also another place where the, the word sha'al um, is clearly translated as requested of me and I shall make nations your domain. Zehu ikar laminim. Rashbam concludes by saying, this interpretation is the true plain meaning of the verse and an appropriate rebuttal of the heretics. Well, really, which is it? Is it the true plain meaning of the verse or is it a rebuttal of the heretics? Um, he makes it very clear that he's offering this interpretation as a response to Christian accusations of immorality and deception on the part of B'nai Israel leaving Egypt. But does it actually work linguistically? Is it really the true plain meaning of the text? So possibly it is. The eminent Rushbaum scholar, Professor Merton Lakshin, points out that some <laughs> um, points out that some moderns including the authors of the authoritative academic dictionary of Biblical Hebrew, Brown, Driver, and Briggs, accept that Sha'al really does mean to request as a gift in this pasuk. However, others see this interpretation as purely polemical. For instance, Avraham Grossman cites this Rashbam in his book in order to prove that even an exegete as dedicated to Pshat, the simple meaning of the text, as Rashbam, can sometimes offer a far-fetched reading of the text for polemical purposes. Probably the biggest linguistic problem with this interpretation is actually in Perak Yod Bet, um, verse 36, which you have on your source sheets um, as source number four. This is where the Jews actually, where B'nai Israel actually do leave and where they actually do take the gold and silver. Um, so, so basically the tenth plague has just happened, firstborns are dying, and um, Paro calls to Moshe and Aharon. Vaikrala Moshe Ulaharon Laila. Vayomer. Kumutz umitochami. Gamatem gamene Israel. Ulechuiz duet adonai kedaberchem. He calls to Moshe and Aharon in the middle of the night and says, Get out of my nation, you and your people. Go worship God as you requested. Gamtonchem gambekarchem. Kachukasher dibartem. Valechu. Right, you can have everything that I wasn't offering you in the last negotiation. I'm offering that to you now. Put in a good word for me also. Um, and the Egyptians were frenzied, trying to get everyone out of there quickly because they said, we're all going to die. Carrying the dough, um, the little foreshadowing of the um, Here's the, um, the crux of it. The Bnei Israel did what Moshe told them. And they borrowed, asked, depending on how you read this, from the Egyptians, um, gold and silver vessels and clothing. And God disposed the Egyptians favorably towards the people, and and then they stripped the Egyptians. The simplest way of 
translating the word vayash ilum, having a verb that actually means the opposite of lishol. I asked for it, and then you mashiled it to me. You did back to me what I asked for. The, the easiest way to interpret it would be to say that lehashil means to loan, to let them borrow it. Um, Rashbam is forced to interpret this verb as they granted their request. Um, and to actually need a verb for granting their request seems a little forced to me. However, you will notice that the Jewish Publication Society, the translation that I used, actually does agree with Rashbam on that, says they let them have their request. So maybe, it's, maybe it works with the words, maybe it doesn't. Really, the jury is out among the moderns about whether Rashbam's interpretation can work with the words or not. So if we can get around the linguistic problems, this interpretation has some real potential. Ancient and modern commentators alike tried to imagine how and why the Egyptians would be giving outright gifts to B'nai Israel, And they come up with some pretty interesting ideas. Um, so let's start with ancient. The first century Jewish historian Josephus writes the following in his book, Jewish Antiquities. Some Egyptians honored them with these gifts in order to hasten their departure. Right? We saw that in the text, that they were trying to get them out of there. And others out of good neighborliness and the friendship they bore them. When they went forth, the Egyptians wept and suffer, suffered remorse for the way they had treated them ill. Moving along to modern times, in the early, an early 20th century reform rabbi, Benno Jacob, in an article written in German, wrote a very similar idea. It would not have been remarkable had the Jew hated the Egyptian as the enslaver of his ancestors and would have reserved the right not to accord him the generous treatment enjoined by the Torah with regard to the stranger. But the Torah records that the Egyptians and the Jews parted friends, the former liberally furnishing them with gifts. Since the Egyptians could not be expected to offer gifts of their own initiative, Israel was bidden to spur them to do it and say to them, let us part friends, and we will take with us a parting gift. Rabbi Jacob adds the idea that B'nai Israel were commanded to ask, instead of God just taking money from the Egyptians and giving it to B'nai Israel, so that the Egyptians could offer these items to B'nai Israel of their own free will. Thus, the enslavement ends with a heartwarming reconciliation between enslaver and enslaved. This picture of the Egyptians and B'nai Israel parting friends is an attractive one. The problem is that aside from it possibly not being a good reading of the word Sha'al in the first place, it also doesn't fit with the overall context so well. In just a few days' time, all of Egypt will see that B'nai Israel are not coming back, start chasing after them, and end up getting drowned in the sea. So the happy ending with the gold and silver vessels and everyone being friends does not quite fit. Aside from defending contemporary Jews against slander, these apologetic interpretations do serve an important purpose, though. They confront the moral issue, and they teach us some valuable lessons about reconciliation, about justifying your actions, and making sure that what you do is um, viewed by everyone in a positive way. Um, but the one small problem is that they're probably not really reflecting what the Torah actually says. So we move to a second approach to the problem of deception, which seems to me to be more true to the text. This approach claims that deception did occur, but was well-deserved by the Egyptians. The commentators who follow this approach address one or both instances of deception and show how this behavior was appropriate, even though it definitely was deceptive. The 19th century Italian commentator, Rabbi Shmuel David Luzzato, the Shadal, claims that B'nai Israel were simply paying back the Egyptians for their own deception of B'nai Yisrael. V'sha'ala isha, in safeik shahayazem ase tachbula, ki heim lo amru lahem shalo yashuvu od, el aderch shloshe yamim vilashu. Each woman shall ask. There is no doubt that this was an act of deception, for they did not tell them that they would not return, but rather that they would undertake a journey of three days and then come back. Gam, and the term borrowing is also a term referring to a situation of intending to return. 
והאמת, כי זה תחבולה מאת השם. והשם רצה במשפט וצדק, שלא יצאו ישראל ממצרים ריקם, ואם עיקש ציווה להתפתל. And the truth is that this was a, a divine deception. God desired ju judgment and justice, that Israel would not come out of Egypt empty-handed, and therefore he commanded that they deal in a deceptive way with the one who himself was crooked. Omerani ki Yisrael shesavlu ma shesavlu tachat yad hamitriim, v'hikiru ma'alalehem haraimi mahem, kasher nitztavu el hama'aseh hazeh v'kimu oto, lo nirsham b'nafsham klal, shum tzad heter l'ma'asem yirma v'okva. I say that the Israelites, who suffered what they suffered at the hand of the Egyptians and recognized their evil deeds, when they were commanded concerning this act and when they fulfilled it, no impression of license for deception was left in their hearts. Aval behefech, nirsham benafsham, ki Hashem yashiv le'ish kepoalo, v'ya'anish harishaim v'hamit achzerim al re'ehem, ki omnam b'nei Yisrael lo asu hadavar hazem milibam, omnam asuhu mipnei shekein tziva otam manhigam, on the contrary, it was impressed upon them that God recompenses each person as he deserves. He punishes the wicked and the cruel for their evil deeds. For the Israelites did not perform this of their own initiative, but rather they did it because they were so commanded by their leader who spoke to them in the name of God. Thus, what was impressed upon their hearts was that God did detests unjust people, and that he saves those of oppressed spirit and performs good for them. According to Shadal, then, to really have justice served, it was not enough for B'nai Israel to receive the property of the Egyptians, which they deserved as a payment for their work. Really, the Egyptians also deserved to, to undergo the pain of being deceived, the same way that they had dealt deceptively with B'nai Israel. So in deceiving the Egyptians, B'nai Yisrael were the instruments of divine retribution. Rabbi Ovadia Sforno, another Italian commentator, has something of a middle position on the deception involving the gold and silver vessels. He says, You'll strip Egypt, even though you will receive everything from them as a loan, and you will be obligated to return it. Later, everything will be fixed legally, when they chase after you to wage war against you and to plunder you. When they die in that war, since God will fight against them, it is only fair that the spoils of the attackers go to those who were attacked. This is the custom in every war. According to Sforno, once the Egyptians chased after B'nai Yisrael after they left, the situation became one of all-out war. At that point, B'nai Yisrael had the right to keep the vessels as spoils of war. One problem with Sforno's interpretation is that the whole thing still seems a little disingenuous. B'nai Yisrael asked for the items as a loan, knowing full well that they will be keeping them forever, and only later a wartime situation provides the justification for keeping the vessels. But one valuable point that Sforno makes is to introduce the idea that the situation is really one of war. B'nai Yisrael and Egypt are adversaries. They are enemies. And in war, different rules apply. That idea is developed further in a collection of commentaries published in the Chumash Rav Peninim in the 1960s. I found it through Rav Elchanan Samet of Yeshivat Haaretzion, who quotes it in his online article, and I'm just going to quote from his English translation of it, um, part of it. And now let us go on a journey of three days. The author of DR, he wasn't sure who it is, possibly Dorot Rishonim, wrote that he read in a certain book that this presents no difficulty at all. For in a war, it is permissible to engage in every type of deceit and wiliness against the enemy, even to lie to him explicitly with words. We found this in the case of Yehoshua in his war against Ai, where God commanded him, make you an ambush for the city behind it in order to mislead the enemy. Right? In war, you have strategies, and the whole point of strategy is to fool them into thinking one thing and then doing the other. There is not the slightest prohibition involved, for this falls under the category of if someone comes to kill you, get up and kill him first. Anything is justified in order to kill him. 
Here, likewise, there was great benefit to be gained from misleading Paro, such that he would believe that they only wanted to go on a journey of three days, in order that consequently he would pursue them to the sea and be drowned in it, just as they drowned B'nai Israel in the water. Thus, it was completely permissible to deceive him. This approach seems a lot more true to the simple meaning of the psukim. The Egyptians are the enemies of B'nai Israel, and the psukim do seem quite proud of B'nai Israel's clever dealings in defeating their enemies. The concept of different moral standards existing during wartime is one that anyone can understand. So, this might be a good time to point out that all of these interpretations seem to be emerging not just from a reading of the text, but also from the particular cultural and political situations that the various commentators are living in. Abar Benel, who advocated for the Jews in the royal courts of Portugal and Spain, would like to see the request for a three-day journey as being simply a diplomatic move on the part of a Jew who wishes his actions to appear just to all those around him. Josephus, who saw the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans and then attained a high status in Roman society, or Benno Jacob, a radical assimilationist reform rabbi living in Germany before the Holocaust, would like to see the exodus from Egypt ending with no real tension between Jews and their non-Jewish neighbors. On the other hand, a commentary from the mid-20th century, possibly thinking Nazis when saying Egyptians, is obviously going to be a lot more comfortable with B'nai Israel doing anything and everything they can to escape their oppressors. But, if those who read these verses before us responded based on their historical context, I can't help but feel uncomfortable with this last and probably more textually correct interpretation based on my own historical context. As someone living in the United States in the 21st century, the concept of moral justification based on a wartime situation is a little sticky. Can we really use a state of war as an excuse to deprive people of their basic rights to hear the truth? And more to the point, what defines a state of war? Can we describe a situation that has none of the trappings of a conventional war? No armies, no declaration of war. Can we call it a war on slavery, so to speak, and then declare general laws to be suspended? It may just be my time period, but those notions make me a little uncomfortable. I'm not going to suggest a whole new approach, but I think maybe we can tweak this last approach a little by revising our overall question. Describing what happened between Egypt and B'nai Israel as a war is actually a bit of a stretch of the imagination. B'nai Israel have been enslaved to Egypt for centuries. They are less like adversaries in a normal war and more like an insurrection or a group of freedom fighters. And indeed, deceit is often the method employed by the underdog the way that the weak gets ahead of the strong. To illustrate this point, I'll just briefly mention a different instance of deception at the beginning of Exodus. Right at the beginning of the Exodus story, the midwives of the Hebrews are instructed to kill all the baby boys, and they don't do it. And when Pharaoh calls them in to ask them why they didn't do it, they say, oh, all those Jewish women, they give birth so fast, by the time we get there, the babies are already born. And I've never seen anyone getting upset at the Hebrew midwives for lying to Pharaoh. It's very obvious to people that Deception is sometimes the only defense that the weak have against the strong. What is really bothersome to us then about the instances of deception that we mentioned is that B'nai Israel are not as obviously weak as the Hebrew midwives were. Throughout the Exodus story, even as God powerfully destroys Egypt and saves B'nai Israel, the continuing deceit shows that the Torah still sees B'nai Israel as the underdog. So instead of our original moral and philosophical questions, let's ask a question that may be easier to answer. Why is B'nai Israel continuously portrayed in the Exodus story as the underdog who must resort to tricks and deceits even while an awesome and mighty God is very obviously on their side? Rabbi Meir Spiegelman of Yeshivat Haaretzion asks this question especially poignantly. He says, but that great incident, described as a departure, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, concludes in a certain sense 
with a whimper. B'nai Yisrael leave Egypt like thieves in the night, having deceived Paro. Instead of God coming to redeem his people with a high hand, forcing Paro to free B'nai Yisrael and to pay them their due wages for hundreds of years of servitude, God frees them in the middle of the night. And as for their pay, they are forced to acquire it through trickery by asking to borrow various items. Rabbi Spiegelman suggests that this anticlimactic weak departure is a punishment to B'nai Yisrael. He connects it to the deceptive actions of B'nai Yisrael's forefather, Yaakov. He points out a series of parallels between Yaakov in Lavan's house and B'nai Yisrael in Egypt. At the beginning, Yaakov gets to Lavan's house in the first place on the background of the dispute with his brother Esav over the birthright. Similarly, Yosef gets, comes down to Egypt and then brings all of B'nai Israel after him because of the rift between him and his brothers about the birthright. After years of service, Lavan hears of Yaakov's escape after three days. He pursues him and catches up with him after seven days. And Paro likewise begins to pursue B'nai Israel after three days. And according to the rabbi's exegesis, he reaches them at the shores of the Red Sea after seven days. Yaakov furtively receives the payment that is owing to him rather than engaging in a head-on confrontation with Lavan. And B'nai Israel likewise receive their payment not directly, but rather through trickery. The two stories conclude in different ways. Lavan gives up after God reveals himself to him and commands him to stop pursuing Yaakov. But Paro continues to chase B'nai Israel, although God has told him several times not to. Therefore, Lavan merits to meet with Yaakov and to forge a covenant with him, while Paro is drowned in the sea with his entire army. Rabbi Spiegelman concludes, in light of the above comparison, we may posit that the deceitful exodus from Egypt was a result, an effect, of Yaakov's deceitful flight from Lavan. Had Yaakov stood before Lavan and demanded his rightful pay and his wives, B'nai Israel too would have merited to receive their payment and their due rights in a more respectful way. Since Yaakov chose the way of deceit, his descendants were likewise saved through deceit. And because on the seventh day Yaakov finally faced up to Lavan and declared openly all that he had to say, B'nai Israel also merited on the seventh day their public redemption. When the sea opened for them, then closed again on the Egyptians, and they watched the Egyptians perish. This special connection between the exodus from Egypt and Yaakov's flight from Lavan's house may explain why on the Seder night we begin the Exodus story with Yaakov and Lavan. In the Haggadah, we retell the Exodus story by quoting a series of psukim, beginning with the pasuk, Arami Oved Avi, my father was a wandering Aramean. And we begin our exegesis of that pasuk by referring to a midrash that connects this pasuk to Lavan's oppression of Yaakov. Say ulamad ma bikesh Lavan ha'arami la'asot Yaakov avinu. Come and learn what Lavan the Aramean tried to do to our father Yaakov. So referring to Yaakov and Lavan at the Seder may be a reminder of how we ended up getting redeemed through deceit. Perhaps that section is there to remind us of our own human failings, to teach us a lesson about honesty, that deceit frequently leads to more deceit, whereas starting off with complete honesty paves the way for complete honesty in the future. But I'd like to offer one more answer to this last question of ours. One other possibility is that this portrayal of B'nai Yisrael as the underdog and the trickster is supposed to make us feel good. We are supposed to rejoice when we see the little guy triumphing over his powerful overlords. The whole Exodus story in which the great and mighty Paro and his wealthy, strong country are destroyed by humble slaves and their unknown god is a story, like so many other great stories in the Hebrew Bible, of the clever, weaker side overcoming the stronger side. It's the story of Yaakov triumphing over his older brother. It's the story of Yaakov getting ahead of his older brothers. It's obviously the story of David and Goliath. And it's even the story of Esther and the Jews on Purim. And it's also the story of Jewish history in its entirety. If B'nai Israel marched out of Egypt, heads held high, emerging as the clear victor and the stronger nation, then how could Jews throughout Jewish history, who did not experience explicit miracles, and who knew they were part of a weak and downtrodden nation, how could they identify with the Exodus story? Rather, 
Casting B'nai Israel as the underdog makes the Exodus fit in with Jewish history as a whole, with the eternal story of the weak but clever Jews prevailing over their larger and stronger enemies. Instead of lining up the deception in the Exodus story with the Arami Oveda V section of the Pesach Seder, we could link it to the Hisha Amda. Later in the Seder, we raise our, we raise our glasses and say, Shalo echad bilvad amad aleinu lechalotenu. Ela, shabachol dor vador omdim aleinu lechalotenu. The hakadosh baruchu matileinu miyadam. Paro was not the only one who stood against us to destroy us. In every generation, there are those who stand against us to destroy us. But God saves us from their hands. We say that the Exodus story is the story of Jewish history as a whole. But, even more interestingly, I think that this story of the weak underdog triumphing over the strong ruler is so crucial to our narrative of the Exodus that we actually reenact it every year at our Seder night. I'm referring, of course, to the Afikomen. The Afikomen, the hidden piece of matzah that gets stolen and taken around, makes no sense. The Seder is serious. The Afikomen is not. Seder means order. The Seder meal is the most structured, formalized meal that Jews ever eat. In most families, there's one person who leads the Seder, and he or she really takes charge. In many families, there are strong traditions about how to perform the various rituals of the Seder, and it tends to be a fairly authoritarian model. And yet, in the midst of all this, while the Seder leader solemnly hides the Afikomen, it's literally the little guy, the children, who undermine the leadership and steal it away. In many families, the children even receive gifts. Maybe not gold and silver vessels, but something good for their clever trickery. In some families, the children even hold the Afikomen hostage, refusing to return it until they have negotiated a settlement involving gifts from the Seder leader. Of course we know one reason for the Afikomen is just to engage children in the Seder, but perhaps there is this deeper meaning too. Perhaps this ritual of undermining leadership, of the children engaging in clever deception in order to outwit the leaders, the parents, is actually supposed to remind us of that eternal comeback kid, B'nai Yisrael. We remember their ability to engage in clever deception to beat the big guys in Egypt and throughout Jewish history. To conclude, we saw this evening that there are a number of ways to understand the deception in the Exodus story. In answer to our first question, how is it justified, we saw two approaches. One is to play down the deception or to eliminate it completely. The three-day journey could just be a preamble to the real negotiations, or the gold and silver could have been rightfully and explicitly requested. We saw that those who took that approach often reached sensitive and even heartwarming conclusions in which B'nai Israel took great pains to provide moral justification for their struggle and in which a final reconciliation was effected between Egyptian and Israelites. The second approach that we saw affirmed the deception but justified it on the grounds that B'nai Israel were either exacting divine justice or were simply acting the way any prudent person acts in a wartime situation. In response to our second question, the prevalence of deceptive underdog imagery in a story that should be about God's might, we also saw two possible ways to understand it. On the one hand, being the underdog can be negative, and the lesson might be that once we start on the path of deception, it is hard to get off it. On the other hand, being the underdog can be positive, giving hope to weak and downtrodden people throughout history. At this year's Seder, when we recite Arami Oveda Vi and the Hisha Amda, we can remember not only the redemption, but also the nature of the redemption. Not the dominant side over the weaker, but the underdog over the favorites. Whether this affirms our history of being downtrodden but making a comeback, as in the Hisha Amda, or is playfully reenacted in the drama of the Afikomen, the triumph of the underdog is a message that can give us hope and perhaps even inspire us to stand up for the weak and downtrodden in our communities, whoever they may be. I wish you all a meaningful and happy Pesach. Thank you. Um, so I think we have time for some questions and comments, too.
Oh, so, so that's really interesting. I didn't even address the hardening of the heart, and I think that that's kind of a whole other host of issues. So I'm not sure I'm... I'm even a little bit afraid to touch that. Um, but I think that possibly the last couple answers that we um, looked at where deceit is more kind of about the nature of the redemption than it is a strategy might, might, be, able to be, might be able to still work even in light of the hardening of the heart. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that that's, you know, I tried to address that because I think that that really is a problem in the text. And, I mean, you even see it in the source that I put in the middle of source 3 in, in 10.7, um, 10, where they really say, like, you know, what are you doing? How long shall this one be a snare to us? Let the men go and worship the Lord their God. Are you not yet aware that Egypt is lost? Like, it's like, you know, what, what is this? But I do think that Paro is supposed to be portrayed as, you know, very arrogant um, to the point of kind of being, you know, a bit of a megalomaniac, just not being able to even, you know, be aware of the reality around him. And, and I think that possibly it is supposed to be, like, it is supposed to be bizarre, even, that he's acting the way he's acting and that he's supposed to get increasingly bizarre as the story goes on. Okay, I think that's an excellent point that just adding like a, just another irony to the story is this, you know, um, enemy growing up in, in the Paro's palace as, you know, as, as long as we're doing deceptive things under his nose that that just adds to it. That's wonderful. I'm going to give you the classic cop-out answer which is, it's a tension. But I, I really do mean it, though. I, I think that on one hand, we have this, you know, the fact that this is a story about the Yad Chazakah, Bizroa Netuya. This is a story about God's might. At the same time, we have B'nai Israel doing these bizarre things, this requesting to borrow the gold and silver vessels. And, and I think that this story really has this tension where it really does have both of those elements. And, you know, I think you can kind of see both of them because they're, they're both there. All right, so definitely, right, not to, not to belittle the fact that God's might is also such an important part of the story and not to say that this really is exactly the same as every other underdog story. That, that really is an important element also. Thank you. Um, and, um, all right, thank you, everyone. Thank you.